I am drinking a Bloody Mary. Bloody Mary mix. Is there vodka in it or is it just the mix that you're drinking? Well, just the mix because I think it's a bad idea if I'm drinking right now. And I had this like old mix and I had to Google how long until it's bad. I mean, cause you could drink V8 also, you know, keep a body straight. That is so fucking homophobic, dude. Oh, it is now, isn't it? No wonder why they had to retire that tagline. times oh you know i am ryan then the rough pearl by kevin much is not for you no it is not in the words of much the rough pearl is an autobiographical fantasy it follows a pissed off wannabe artist named adam in the mid-90s new york city as he tries to get a tenure track job while stuck in a loveless marriage with his wife who's just as tired of adam as he is of her sounds like an episode of friends pretty much except unlike an episode of friends Things go off the rails for Adam. Yes, in a professional and personal way, but also in a completely sci-fi alternate dimension sort of way. Like there is a bona fide zombie apocalypse. The kind of zombie apocalypse you would say is for the depressed. So I just kind of figured out that Rough Pearl, which came out in 2020, is a sequel to Much's 2010 graphic novel, Fantastic Life, which follows the same character as a much younger man. Rough Pearl also works as a standalone. It is quirky, it's oddball, it's viciously satirical, and Much himself is actually a really interesting guy. I'm Ryan Joe. And I'm Roman Segel. And we're two guys sitting around just waiting for the vaccine. Or the zombie apocalypse. Whichever one comes first. All right, so Kevin Much, one a really interesting project he's continuing to work on is called The Moon Prince, which is a webcomic you can pull off of his website. And it's meant for younger audiences, much younger than people who are probably supposed to be reading The Rough Pearl. And it's an adventure comic in the vein of Tarzan. One of his motivations for doing it is to sort of reclaim adventure comics and adventure stories, which have traditionally been plagued by racism. I mean, I mentioned Tarzan before, right? Edgar Rice Burroughs, his Tarzan adventures were notoriously racist. So much so uh, much in an interview said that he he tried to uh, read it to his son, who is biracial, and couldn't because it was just so racist. He couldn't even use it as a teaching tool. That was one of the impetuses for him to create The Moon Prince. Another really interesting project he did is called Captain Adam, as he describes it, a narrative collage of images and texts from 56 comic books and two pornographic magazines. Kind of like he's just chopping up panels and he actually re-illustrates it so that it all is much more cohesive unlike the main character from the rough pearl who just digitally distorts pornographic images that's a great segue roman into the rough pearl so it is a weird book it's it's a book that that when it starts off doesn't seem like it's going to be that odd it seems like it's just going to be sort of like this really disgruntled dude trying to move through you know the professional world having been disappointed you know not having found the success he wanted to have as an artist and then it gets it gets really, really weird. So, you know, I'm, I'm kind of wondering, Roman, what was your response when you when you read it? I didn't know what to expect. You know, this was something you had mentioned you had discovered a little bit off the beaten path. And it starts out really literal and it only starts to seep in the weirdness early on. And I actually appreciated that because if you went full on weird, you wouldn't want to follow the misanthropic life of this guy. After I read it, the horror of it is the mediocrity of his life. It's it's mm. the the nightmare life you don't want to wake up living. And of course, he makes a couple of leaps and he does a couple of dangerous things with his student. 
along the way but to me the horror was in the mundane and the mundane was so i I hate to say relatable because i'm enjoying my life i i like everything about it but i can see how someone's life could just turn into that and you know i was reading the bio of the guy i think he is from winnipeg this character came from winnipeg to new york so it's clear he is reflecting elements of his life maybe exaggerated elements but i think he is revealing his mediocre nightmare you know and i think that's what this book was oh yeah absolutely much has mentioned before it is it is partially autobiographical you know he much lived in new york city and in the in the mid 90s he taught at FIT. He even had an opportunity to break into the art world, completely shattered by a, I guess, a misinterpreted sexual gesture. I, I was curious about whether you'd like this aspect or not. And I, you know, this is also something that I was hesitant about when I first read it, which is Adam is so angry, right? He's kind of greasy. He's always got this look on his face where he hates everything. It, it's almost stifling being around him. You know, so you know how it is, you know, when you when you're around like somebody who's sort of like intensely negative or somebody who is just like always complaining, there's always a feeling. But here's, but here's why it's upsetting. You know how you don't like hearing your own voice on a answering machine or a podcast for that matter? That's what his expressions and his thoughts felt like. Hmm. It was so familiar. You know, like we all have a little bit of bottled up anger or whatever emotional baggage we have. And it's the reflection is like laying bare on the pages. And I think that's what was upsetting about it. I was like, I could see the Adam in me a little bit, you know? We've all had some of those thoughts that he's had. And that's that's what was so fucking horrifying about this book. Again, in a good but disturbing way. Do you we've said in the past you don't like I think actually when we were reviewing Skim, the cringe stuff, the stuff that hits too close to home, you know, like the bullying that happened in Skim and you were kind of thinking about your own life. Was that, you know, did, did Adam hit too close to home for you or were you sort of like, or, or, yeah, or was yeah, there something there? You know, actually, no, it's, that, that's interesting that you say that. In Skim, it was stuff from the outside world happening to you that was reflected. And that's what dredges up the memories. This was like hearing your own voice on the answering machine. Like, again, I didn't, I haven't thought these exact thoughts. I haven't been in these exact moments as him, but I think we've all had these kind of thoughts. So the fact that it was so much self-reflection. I guess there's a cringe, but I think when it's self-reflection, it's more horror. Cringe is when it's the outside world happening to you. That's a that's an interesting distinction. I never actually thought of it like that because I actually do think of this as cringe. But you're right; it's much different because it's interior, right? All of that, all of the the, the nastiest stuff that we don't let know, the world really see. Comes, well, your your god telepaths don't exist in the world, <laughs> and it's all coming from from Adam. And his own insecurities and his own kind of personal rage. But then there's these, there's a handful of moments of your like sheer joy. Like on page ninety, after the artists leave his house, he shuts the door, kind of completely dumbfounded, and it's just this like jump of joy. I've never done that jump of joy, but we've all felt that jump of joy on the terrible day when something great happens. So I hate to say that he's relatable. But he is, and that's what makes this book scary as hell. I think actually, much does a really good job. Not making adam too oppressive to be around part of it is that you kind of see him trying really hard like one of the things i really liked about him is one of his tendencies is he always says the stupidest thing possible and he's trying (laughs) so hard he's aware like he's in a bad situation if he says the wrong thing things are going to go bad so he's trying really hard to say the right thing 
and he just ends up saying like the absolute worst thing you could possibly say. And this happens like consistently with him, which almost makes him endearing because you feel he's not trying to be malicious. He's not trying to do bad things. He just, it just kind of slips out and he can't help himself. So I got to ask Ryan, I mean, did you relate much to, to Adam? Yeah, you kind of have that that interior dialogue a lot when you're just kind of annoyed with everybody around you. I mean, that's sort of Adam's demeanor, right? He's just sort of annoyed with everyone around him. He thinks everyone's asking kind of stupid questions. He doesn't want to answer those questions. He, you know, and he's he's working a dead-end job with with no future. And I've definitely felt that in the in the past. And you know, I felt those frustrations boiling over. I think I'm doing a much better job than Adam does of of keeping it kind of tamped down. I'd like to think Actually, I don't know. I think in my younger days, I definitely didn't understand the importance of censoring yourself and how that can be sort of like bad for networking if you don't. Or good for it. You you get all the bullshit people, you know, the fluff out and you meet the real people. Yeah. But I I, I think the other thing about Adam that we, you know, that, that does make him relatable and again, less oppressive to be around is that he's actually pretty competent with, you know, Photoshop. He's clearly good at his job as a teacher. Right when he types up that syllabus, albeit in sort of a weird haze, but it shows like a tremendous amount of expertise in his you know area of focus. And I think there's somebody once told me that one of the you know one way to make somebody a character instantly relatable, and I think this is true, is you show that character at work, but also doing a good job. Right? I think nowadays they call it competence porn, where you know where a character is good at their job and. You know, no matter what else is going on, that, that, that kind of immediately makes them relatable and, and likable. And I think, you know, Adam is that, right? You, you first see him. He's teaching his students. He knows, he knows Photoshop. He, he knows the tools. He knows how to, how to work all of this stuff. And he clearly has his students' respect, even as he's kind of like irritated having to, having to teach them in the first place. But did he actually write the syllabus? And I, I want to pivot to mm, Ron Vitare. Yeah. Like when the sci-fi starts to show up in this story. So the science fiction stuff, is that related to the thing that this is a sequel to? Or or do we just need to unpack the science fiction stuff being a metaphor for something else going on in the so, book? Yes, yeah, so I didn't read the previous book. So The Fantastic Life was a 2010 graphic novel following the same character, Adam, when he was like an art student in the in the 80s. I have not read it. So I... I, I from my from reading like summaries of it, I, I I think the the memory loss, the zombies, those are those are a kind of a connecting motif. But I, I mean, I also think the rough pearl stands as its own. We can have an interpretation of what Adam's blackouts mean, what Ron Vitare means, what the zombie apocalypse means to him, based mm-hmm. off of just what we have in this in this comic. And I also I, I'd be doubtful that the prequel would give us like this magic key that lets us interpret everything literally okay i just want to dig into this like i've thought science fiction thoughts i haven't experienced science fiction things in my life but in my own inner monologue i've sometimes had thoughts about oh well what if this none of this is real or what if you know this is the truman show and i've had thoughts like that and so to see him thinking about parallel earths and parallel realities and the other paths it's I really wonder if this is just something going on in his head or if this is something literally happening to the character. So, well, before we get into that, I just, I'm just curious what your science fiction thoughts are. You kind of outlined some of them, but give me your weirdest one. God, no, not on this podcast, but, I'll, uh, but I'll, when I was a little kid, 
like young, five to eight. I used to think I before the Truman Show was a thing, I was like, oh, wouldn't it be weird if in the backyard there's actually like invisible stadium seating and people are watching us? Like this is a TV show. And so when the Truman Show, the movie came out with Jim Carrey, I was like, huh, I clearly am not the only person who has had this thought. <laughs> and it's kind of one of those things like we've all had the teeth grinding dreams or the flying dreams. So like to me, that was like one of the most common occurrences. I think the other one my wife makes fun of me about is uh, temporal time travelers. So to be clear, I have zero ego that I'm an important person in this world in the grand scheme of history. But if time travel is possible, will there be temporal time travelers who, similar to Star Trek The Next Generation, where they go on the holodeck and put on the costumes, or when they actually go to another time, are there people traveling back because they just want to experience the moment when that thing happened? And so, Ryan, let's pretend you're, uh, so you become super famous, right? Temporal time travelers, they can pay $10,000 for that really critical moment in Ryan's life. Or if you're poor, you can pay 100 bucks to that day Ryan recorded that shitty podcast with Roman, right? <laughs> like, so you pay less money for the mundane moments of the greats, but you pay. So, like that UPS guy who came to your door this morning, Ryan, that was a temporal time traveler. <laughs> and I, I told this to my wife, and she was like, no one would pay to see anything about your life. I've had a. Uh body switching thoughts like so you're watching like a famous musician like play during the super bowl or whatever what if you like suddenly found yourself in that person's body but knowing only what you know in your in your current self so like you mean kind of like every episode of quantum leap i actually haven't seen quantum leap oh one of the great shows of all time that's literally the opening scene of every episode of Quantum Leap. He's really? jumping back into other people's body. And the episode is, and it's the guy, I think his name was Sam Beckett. No, it was Sam, Sam Bakula who plays him. But he, so if he was like 50 years old as the scientist in the future, he was only experiencing moments in his own life, but through other people, famous people, non-famous people. And there was something, and he was living in their body for the whole episode. So it's, what was the, what was the conflict? for him like what would what, oh so the only way the only way he could it was some scientific accident and the only way he can make it home is if he keeps leaping and the only way to leap mm. is he has to solve the mystery he doesn't know why he's leaping into these people's body and so he has this holographic projection scientist buddy from the future who's like has a little handheld computer in pre-smartphone era and he's like saying oh according to newspapers and our scientific team this was the day that this and this happened. So he's basically protecting the timeline, making sure the right thing happens. And he's okay. basically saving these people's lives by living their life one episode at a time on NBC. See, that, my conflict was that like suddenly you find yourself in the body of like Michael Jackson performing during the Super Bowl. But you don't know Michael Jackson's lyrics. You don't know the dance he's supposed to do. You are in Michael Jackson's but that's body. What, that's what would happen at these critical at moments of the people's lives. He'd jump into a woman's body. He'd jump into, because the end of every episode, they show him leaping into the next body. And all of a sudden, Sam finds himself in the middle of surgery. And he's like, oh boy. And how is he going to get out of this one? That's, he's always doing something like that. Sometimes with celebrities, sometimes with not people. He doesn't know how to perform surgery. He doesn't know how to fly a plane, et cetera, et cetera. And he, he finds really, some he finds some creative way to 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 figure it out to get out. Uh, of yeah, it. he finds a way to like get out of the situation or something. But like, quantum leap, man. We we just do wonder, a whole podcast. We're, we're scrapping this podcast. Fuck quarantine comics. I'm talking about quarantine quantum leap. Like that's well, a, that's I, a podcast. 
I'm kind of wondering if maybe this this thought came from maybe I watched Quantum Leap at some point and that's where this thought got planted because I don't have any memories of Quantum Leap. So in in Quantum Leap, did he ever get out of a situation by faking a seizure? Probably. Because that's how I would kind of get out of everything. I kind of thought like if I were like suddenly find myself in Michael Jackson, I mean, obviously if I find myself in Michael Jackson's body, I'm screwed because he's like all decayed right now. But like when he's alive, I find myself in like a performer's body, don't know what to do, got millions of eyes on me. How would I get out of it? I would just fake a seizure. I'd fake a medical emergency on stage. Well, hey, taking this back to the rough pearl. Okay, so there's a lot of weird shit that happens in the middle of of the rough pearl and it leaks out very slowly you know it begins as like a blackout and then it slowly starts to become more and more hallucinogenic so more was it and more that was literally happening to him or uh, in, in the comic was it literally happening to him or was this trying to tell a deeper part is this part of his psychosis i mean both could honestly be true right it could be, you know, I mean, just imagine if you have, if you have like a form of psychosis, plus you're like being whisked between different alternate dimensions, you'd be really screwed up. So, I mean, it, it could definitely be like both things are happening. I don't know. It's, you know what? This is sort of like the Calvin and Hobbes thing, right? Like is Hobbes, you know, a real tiger who comes to life when no one's, well, it doesn't really matter. You know, what matters is sort of like, you know, kind of what happens around that gimmick. And I think similar thing can be said with the rough pearl like does it really matter if it's real or if it's happening in his head i think the interesting thing about it is sort of like how adam reacts to all of it and how he tries to navigate this really uncomfortable situation and how he often wakes up you know he 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 kind of like drifts off and then he'll wake up in like completely weird situations like having warped ahead like you know hours yeah days and having done things that he has no recollection of doing. Actually, it reminds me actually of people who like take Ambien, right? And then they, they fall asleep. But when they're asleep, they kind of do things like sleep eating or... I, I had a friend who kind of went through something. She would take Ambien and she she would wake up and a loaf of bread would be missing. Or one of the more alarming moments is that she woke up and there were like cigarette butts that she had stubbed out in her on a plate in her living room and she had quit smoking. So she kind of realized that she had gone out, she'd taken Ambien and in her sleep gone out and probably bummed cigarettes off of somebody and came back and smoked it. That's when she stopped taking wow. Ambien. Wow. Well, better than taking naked pictures with one of your art students. Spoiler alert. Yeah. Yeah. But that's the thing like with, with, with Adam, right? You know, when he blacks out, he does things that are kind of really ambitious. And sometimes it's good. Like he writes a syllabus and sometimes he takes naked pictures with this, with one of his. But, but maybe that's what it is. It's like the releasing of, I'm probably going to say this wrong, but the releasing of his id. You know, he's leading this repressed life. He's thinking these dark thoughts. Why the fuck can't I do this? Why can't I just do that? Why can't I do more like that? And then he blacks out. He wakes up two days later or a day later and he's done the thing that he couldn't let himself do. Every time, every time. Yeah, well, so a large part of the blackouts, right? He's walking down a path and people, and, you know, he's in, in, it's sort of like a metaphor for his path in life. I mean, it's kind of explicitly states that. Yeah, when, when he meets the alien on the path, yes. Right. Yeah, and, you know, he's got a whole bunch of, eye, you know, there's like these weird eyeballs that are, that are kind of like following him around. And so there's this whole concept of like destiny. What are your options? Are you choosing the right option? It's an idea that Kevin much plays with in his comic more than really resolves. 
did you have a take on that? Like, like the nature of what Adam goes through when he hallucinates the idea of being on this path, you're either locked in and you're going down that path or you just decide, you know, the hell with it. I'm, I'm, I'm doing something else entirely. Well, to bring it back to the idea of time travel and, 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 you know, physicists have actually talked about quantum realities. If there's only one timeline, then there is no path to be very clear. We can do whatever we want and the universe manifests itself second by second by all the choices we collectively take. And if that's the case, there is no path. And so him thinking about the path, it is the hypothetical of I could go do this or I could do that. And there's consequences to either of those. And if there's only one reality, then the path is bullshit. And, and what's interesting about it is Adam is constantly questioning the choices he made and the path that he's chosen. And I think in the dream, there's like, well, you got to stick to your past. Like, no, you don't. Like, I, honestly, and this this really kind of, I don't want to know if it rubbed me the wrong way or it activated something I firmly believe in. Everything in life is a choice and it's your choice. Now, there can be constricting factors to those choices on why you can't, you know, empty out your bank account and go to the Cayman Islands, but that's a choice. Everything is a choice. There is no preordained path. And this might rub some people the wrong way that might be more religious than I, because I'm not. But that's why life is precious. There's one shot. There's no preordination. There's no do-overs. There's no alternate reality where you did that other thing. That's a thought exercise. And I think by Adam blacking out, he's freeing himself from this construct and this idea that there's a path. I don't buy what the aliens are telling him, that it is all preordained, because that's what Adam's almost rejecting. I think. Right. But that's actually the conflict, right? Because initially they're saying this is preordained. You're supposed to go down that path. You're not supposed to break free. I mean, that's essentially Adam's interpretation of it based off of what people in his dream state are telling him. And then later on, I think he kind of has this revelation like, oh, wait, no, maybe I wasn't supposed to break free. So basically what you what we initially supposed Adam's path was might might have been different. So the book's definitely playing with that idea of preordination versus what's the opposite of preordination? What would be the vocabulary word for that? I actually or, don't or, Ordination? I don't know. But no, I, but the, the, the only place they break that, that mold in the storytelling is Ron. So if Ron, mm -hmm. if no one else could see Ron, it would be very sixth sense. Oh, no one actually, no one else actually interacts with Ron. But there's physical consequences of Ron's existence. His yes. his boss introduces Ron. They're now sharing an office together. There's all these books in the office. You could argue that that's all in his head. But Ron is a real person interacting with the rest of the real world. And he is saying weird-ass alien shit and disappearing yeah. all the time. So it is this idea of the universe, and maybe that's what he represents, right? Not these aliens, but the universe saying, stay on the path, right? But in his dream state, everyone's saying, stay on the path. To me, that's his subconscious, his subconscious fighting mm -hmm. back against his impulse, because while he is in the dream state, he is blacked out. So in his dream state, everyone's telling him, stay on the path. And he is fucking shit up. He is doing what he's not supposed to do to stay on the path when he blacks out. And he so actually, I, that, he both is 
he both is and he's not. The first time he blacks out, he writes that really awesome syllabus, note, you know, so which, which is, is what, what he was supposed, supposed to do. Doing. Fair, but fair. then he blacks out again and then he's like doing having an inappropriate photo shoot with his student. So which is I actually kind of liked how it's not clear whether this, you know, the blackouts actually help Adam or actually Are there only two blackouts him. in the book? There are more. I think those are the two where he did something really nuts during the blackouts, yeah. but he definitely has other blackouts where, you know, where whatever he did doesn't really affect him as much. Yeah. I actually, I want to talk about Ron because I think I really actually liked that decision of to make Ron actually a real person. So Ron is this weird character who comes in and he says some really weird stuff that Adam isn't sure if it's meant just for him. And so you can imagine Ron being a figment of Adam's imagination, but actually he's not. Many people interact with with Ron. And that actually complicates things quite a bit because as you mentioned, Ron clearly exists in this world. He's You can't just kind of write him off as a figment of Adam's imagination. His books clearly exist. His office clearly exists. Ron's weird speech impediment or, you know, or, or vocal tics clearly exist. This isn't a criticism, but I wasn't exactly sure like what he was trying to get at with the Ron character. You know, I like that he existed in both Adam's head as well as in the real world. But, you know, and then he also, Ron is also kind of the vehicle where you get this weird alternate reality. A sci-fi alien race is secretly monitoring Adam sort of narrative. And then Ron's- And and the question is, why Adam? Is Adam that important? Well, I mean, Adam certainly thinks that he is, right? I mean, Adam is- pretty much like obsessed with what's going on in his own head as most people are so it kind of makes sense that adam's perception of ron would be that ron is zeroed in on adam i mean it almost kind of speaks to adam's solipsism right where everything kind of revolves around him now whether that's accurate or not whether that's sort of the reality of ron or not kevin much doesn't make that clear he doesn't intend to make that clear but it's something that you know definitely speaks to Adam's mentality and how he relates specifically to this character of Ron. So when when Adam opens up the books in Ron's library, right, and looks up his life, he sees that you know mediocre life, nineteen ninety six to two thousand, and then in two thousand and one, death. And he's living in New York, and I do wonder, like, is two thousand one? There's clearly a zombie apocalypse that apparently is going to happen. Spoiler alert. But, or is that, is that 9-11? Yeah, is that supposed to be a 9-11? That's, that's what I'm wondering. Or is a zombie apocalypse? And again, the way the book ends, it happens. The terrible thing happens. He says, fuck it and gets through it. He gets together with the girl because his wife is cheating on him. And he lives happily ever after and he gets over 9-11. He lives through it. Okay, yeah, give me your interpretation of the ending. Because the ending is enigmatic. I think there are multiple interpretations of it. So like, so your interpretation was kind of like a happy ending where he gets a girl and he... Yeah, it's like, you know, he he lays down in bed and he's like, oh, fuck, you know, they got me. And he lays down and he's upset with his wife and you zoom out and it's the world and they show a couple of flash forwards. And you have to question, what are these flash forwards? He has a successful meeting with the artist then he's looking at what could have been or he's looking at what, what what had been but now he's looking in the mirror reflection in the zombie apocalypse and the world melts and the world is clearly melting and then you zoom in on a bullet ridden apartment 
mm. and he's sleeping with the student. Right. And so the question is, is all of that terror, all of that horror supposed to be 9-11, except it's zombies, I guess. And because he decided to go the other way, zig when he should have zagged, he lived. He lived through it, and he lives happily ever after. That's how I interpret it. I mean, but how do you interpret it? My interpretation was actually that he fails, that he gets caught in his own personal apocalypse. And that fantasy with where he's with a student, that last panel where he's with a student, my interpretation of it was that it was that it was a fantasy, his respite from from his own personal turmoil. And the reason I came to that conclusion is because at the end, everything good had completely fallen to shit, right? Adam was, the you know, the high part of this book, Adam was on track to get tenure. His career was, was taking off. At the same time, he was getting some small recognition for his artwork. And then all of that gets taken away kind of at the ending. That's why I interpreted the ending to be really negative, that it was wish fulfillment, but that he was fundamentally in his own apocalypse of his own making. He was kind of like trapped in his own head. What I'm trying to say is the path that you think is the right thing that he should be doing was not the right path. Like to me, that's the fundamental maybe disagreement we have with him. I think the path was wrong for him and he thought he had to stay on the path. And by breaking free of the path, he didn't die. He survives. He thrives. Hmm. I had trouble seeing this as thriving because what happens at the end, he's professionally, personally, he's at a nadir. So I, I had troubles interpreting that as him thriving, as him, you know, breaking free. First off, like, like when, when we say breaking free of the path, like what does that mean? You know, does that mean he becomes an artist? Does that mean he does everything that's, you know, he kind of goes against his own instincts for survival? Like, what is that? By, by, the, by the end of the book, here's what's happening. In a blackout, he took inappropriate pictures with his art student, who he clearly has a thing for. He's finding his marriage falling apart. He pretty much has evidence that, circumstantial to be clear, but evidence that his wife is cheating on him. And his wife says, hey, it's going to take six years for tenure. And that's literally when the music stops and the book starts to wrap mm. up because he's like, shit, I've got to stick with this, this woman who's cheating with me for six years. And then he starts saying the books that I only have six years left to live. I've got to do something about this, you know, take some drugs, gets the email from the girl who's like, are you okay? What happened? And he's like, I hope there's some way we can, I think he's saying, see each other. And he's like, Oh, I can't write this on my work servers. And then he deletes the email, pops some pills, and passes out. And then he wakes up in bed with his, you know, wife, the cuckolded wife, or he's cuckolded from his wife, whatever. And which and we don't the actually know. Away. Yeah, we don't. Which we don't actually know. If he, I mean, it's hinted that he is, but we don't actually know for sure. He believes he has been for sure. But sorry, That's go fair. on, go on, Rob. No, that's fair. And maybe it's because I'm seeing the, the book I want to see. But it's like everything on the path says, keep trying in this dead end job. Keep trying to make it living in New Jersey, commuting into Manhattan. Is stay with your wife who's propping up your lifestyle, who's clearly cheating on you, but she's going to get tenure. All of these things. That's staying on the path. And I think what this book, the book, I think it is a happy ending. It's because he will die somehow. In six years, or he can change to choose to change things. And by choosing to change things, he can truly live. And I think because even in 
I mean, the last interaction with the eyeballs, it's, wor- it's worth rereading the last interactions with the eyeballs, I guess is what I'd say, because that's a very kind of telling conversation about making my own hell, branches, etc. So that's probably what got me to the point of he's choosing to reject this, especially once he realizes the world's going to fall apart if he stays on the path. Just talking to you about this, I actually appreciate the book a lot more because there's definitely like a very grounded narrative of a guy trying to work his way through whatever he's trying to work his way through. Yeah. But it ultimately, there's actually a lot of room to interpret it. I mean, this is kind of a Rorschach test because like you have one interpretation of the ending of you know what happens yeah. throughout the book and I have a different interpretation of it. And there's really no way of like determining who's right or who's wrong. I don't think there's, you know, there's there's no key to understanding what exactly is happening in this book. And I think that's actually really a, a tremendous accomplishment by Kevin Much to kind of keep that ambiguity, but to also keep this whole book so dramatically propulsive because we're really involved with Adam's fuck-ups throughout, even when it goes off <laughs> well, the... Because off the- it's, it's the answering machine. It's I, We haven't been where he's been, but we've been in similar-ish situations about our jobs, about our careers, about our relationships at some point in our life. And that's because it's so self-reflective, this book, like literally holding a mirror up to all of our horrors of mediocrity. I think that's why it is, to your point, it's a Rorschach test. Absolutely. Absolutely. And how you choose to see the world. So I'm sorry you're so dark, Ryan. Well, you know, I mean, there's a lot more we could always say about this book. There's the whole satirical element to it, but about academia and the art world. But, you know, we're at 45 minutes. So I got to tell you about next week's read. And I actually introduced it last week during our review of Sailor Twain. But like Adam, our realities are clearly off. Anyway, next week's book is about a guy who just wants to create something and he lands completely in another dimension. Sounds like Rough Pearl, but actually, it's really different. Next week, for real this time, we are going to read Satoshi Kon's Opus. And if you know Satoshi Kon, it's likely not for his manga comics, but for his anime. He's known for directing four movies, Perfect Blue, Millennium Actress, Tokyo Godfathers, and Paprika, as well as the TV limited series Paranoia Agent, all of which have inspired American directors like Darren Aronofsky and Christopher Nolan. But before he was a film director, Cohn was a manga creator, and Opus is unfinished, I'm sorry, Roman, and it's the last of his comics work before he went to anime. In fact, its creation overlapped with the movie Perfect Blue. Now, Cohn likes to play around with the nature of reality. In his movies, it's often unclear what's a dream, what's a movie, what's real, what's not. And there's an extent to which Opus, where the character of a comic literally falls into his own work and finds himself having adventures with the characters he creates, feels like an early version of that conceit. Like, Cone is working out how to do it. And that's what we'll get into next week, so hold on to your hats, or whatever's on your head. <laughs>